Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. It was the night before, and I read the statistics, and I knew what I was going to say, but I was just, okay, there's been a few years. I think I have to Google this. I have to just see what's out there. Yeah, I Googled, and I did it really like, okay, so what would be the first thing that I see if I'm 10 years old or 12, and I'm just Googling porn, clicking on the first link, watching the first video? And yeah, I'm not going to be too graphic, but the two videos that I watched were graphic for sure. One of them being one girl and I think five or six guys just beating her up, really. And that was the first video. I'm not saying that's every video, but that's what I saw then. And I saw I just kind of the day after went into this talk just thinking that, okay, we've got to talk about this because that's always been my deal that if there's a difficult issue, we have to have a conversation about it. We cannot be silent. Hey there, it's Light Watkins, and we are back with another episode of At the End of the Tunnel, which is your podcast about hope. I'm sharing with you stories about people just like you and me who decided to challenge convention and rethink what it means to be successful, who took a leap of faith towards something more altruistic than just working for money. And this week's episode is a very, very special one. We are going to talk about pornography. But before we get into the backstory of my guest, have you left a rating or review for the podcast yet? Because that's still the best way that you can support this podcast by just taking 10 seconds to rate it. And you can do it while I'm introducing this week's guest. As I'm talking, just glance down at your phone, click the name of the podcast and scroll down to the bottom and you'll see a section that says ratings and reviews and you just click the fifth star on the right. And that's it. Easy breezy. And you make it a lot easier for other people to find these conversations. Now, in the meantime, I'm going to introduce you to Maria Aline of Sweden. Maria has a viral TEDx talk, which I stumbled upon one day. It's called Let's Talk Porn. And as of today, her talk has garnered over 5 million views in less than a year. And she's given hundreds of educational talks over the years about the effects of porn addiction and the connections that it can have to sex trafficking. And Maria has been an activist for one cause or another since she was a child. It was fascinating to hear how she zeroed in on the porn industry and why she intentionally chose to take a softer approach when it comes to helping individuals overcome their porn addiction. Her aim is not to shame. It's not that kind of conversation. It's more about educating and empowering her audiences and celebrating the smaller victories. And that's what I found most inspiring about her work. And I obviously think you will too, which is why I invited her onto the podcast to come and share her backstory. She's also got a nonprofit called Changing Attitudes, which we're going to talk about as well. We're going to go over how and why she started it in case anybody out there is considering starting a nonprofit for their mission. And hopefully hearing Maria's story will inspire you to become an advocate for the cause that you're most passionate about. Because that's the point of these conversations. It's not just to ooh and ah over all the challenges that somebody had to overcome. It's to use the lessons that they learned to inspire us to take the leap of faith in becoming whatever type of positive change that we would like to see in the world. Without further ado, I want to introduce you to Miss Maria Aline of Let's Talk Porn. Maria, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I've been really excited to talk to you. I've been following your work for a while and following you on social media, and I love the stuff that you post. I want to go a little deeper now into the backstory and see how you became the person that you are today. 
thanks again for agreeing to come on and, and have this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. As usual, I don't know if you've listened to any of my podcasts before, yeah, I but have. I like to start the conversation off talking about childhood. And mm-hmm. my kickoff question is if you can think back to little Maria <laughs> and what you enjoy doing the most when you're free time, what was that toy that you played with or what was that activity that you engaged with when you were young? Right. What kind of comes to mind is besides spending a lot of time with animals, I had a horse for a few years and I would take a lot of riding lessons, but books is really what kind of comes to mind. I've always been like a big reader and my father mostly like he, he taught me to read when I was, I think I was like five or something, four or five. And that stuck with me. So I'm still a big reader today. And I would read basically like anything that he would hand me and especially Harry Potter when that came up. Yeah, I guess I saw it like as a challenge because the books are quite, I mean, it's not like 10 pages, like you have to spend a lot of time reading. So yeah, so books and, and horses, I would say were my main things. Now, I know you grew up in Norway. I'm not sure what the horse per capita <laughs> situation is there, but do a lot of people have horses or is that like a really unique thing or how does um, that fit in to your family well, life? I mean, I would say it's quite usual to be spending time with horses. It is an expensive hobby, I would say as well. So, I mean, obviously it depends on what you're kind of able to afford, but yeah, it's not, it's not uncommon. Not at all. I guess what would be more a bit like uncommon would be Because I got my first horse uh, as like mine when I was 12 or something or 13. But I did all the work. I really did. And I, you know, I worked, you know, I I cleaned at my grandmother's house. And, you know, like I really like I didn't take it for granted. I actually put in some work and did it all basically by myself. Who taught you how to care for a horse? I mean, the older girls like in the stable would obviously be very helpful but mainly it's about like just being in love with animals I've always been such an animal lover so I I was just drawn to horses and like today when like you know looking back at it I really see like what kind of leadership training that really is because you know you have to be so mindful of this animal that you're handling and it's really not about like forcing not to me at least it's not about forcing a horse to do something it's more about getting it to cooperate with you. So it's really about leadership. There's sort of this golden rule that if it's raining outside and you get home back to the stable, you have to take care of the horse before you take care of yourself. So it's it's a good kind of training that you get from that. Tell me about your household. What was that like? Yeah, I guess I was quite like independent, but obviously my dad worked a lot. So he would be gone during the weekdays. And then, so my mom was kind of uh, more or less a stay-at-home mom with us. And I mean, she was very present, I have to say. But then in many areas, we're very different as well. So I would be quite independent and not afraid to test my wings, I guess. My mom and dad, they were never married. And it was a bit like an on-and-off relationship. I mean, obviously, it was a complex, to some extent, it was complex But still, I never felt like I didn't have my parents around or anything like that. And in regards to siblings, it was me and my baby sister. She was three years older, younger than me. So I was the older, the older sister with everything that that kind of like includes, you know, like taking responsibility and stuff like that. Is it normal for your parents in Norway to not be married or is that very unusual? Oh, it's very normal, I would say. For sure. Yeah. That is definitely not uncommon. And it's even more normal, I would say, to like get a divorce. So that's nothing, nothing new, really. Yeah. So I remember when I was a kid, right? And I grew up in the 70s. So this was sort of this sort of playboy era. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember I remember going into my dad's closet in the back of the closet and he would have these I knew he, he wasn't like hiding it, but he would just keep he would keep his Playboy stash there. And there were like hmm. stacks and stacks of Playboys. It was something that I would go in and, and kind of sneak around and, and take a look at. Yeah. 
And I'm just curious, when you were a kid, what was your first sort of exposure to pornography, if, yeah. if you had any? And I'm just asking you this, obviously, because that's a part of your journey. So we're going to talk about yeah. that a lot more later. But what yeah. was your first exposure? No, I actually, I really remember it. I must have been like 12 and it was during a lunch break in school. And some of my best guy friends had brought a, uh, I think it was a Playboy too. They brought, you know, brought a, a magazine to school and sort of like showed it to all of us. I guess I just like peeked over, you know, their shoulders and was like, what is this? Because <laughs> obviously like it's so exciting when you're a kid. And so, yeah, that was my first encounter. But I mean, I got my smartphone when I was like, what, 23? or something. So I didn't grow up with that, you know, so I was obviously very, in many ways, protected, I guess would be the word. The sort of internet exposure came way later. And I was very much aware than what I was doing, or what I was looking for. I remember when I first looked at Playboy, I was fascinated. I couldn't get, I couldn't get enough of it. Right. <laughs> what did you feel when you first, when they brought the magazine, did you feel curious? Or did you feel like disgusted? Or did you talk to your parents about it or how did you react i just remember feeling like this was like a boys thing that's kind of what was going on in my head i was just like oh you know these boys kind of like sort of writing it off and i think like that's even like like today we see that as well in studies even so you know that kids and youth are to a very i would say high extent very much capable of dealing with what they're seeing in porn sort of understanding what this is. Yeah. So I think I sort of had that reaction, like, oh, you know, not that big a deal, but obviously I remember it, you know, so it's, it's strong images. And I think, you Mm -hmm. know, obviously we need to kind of take that seriously because it's not like any other cartoon. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, You get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. When you think about what you want to be when you grow up, what was your idea for yourself at the young age of 12 or however old? Yeah, I had like three options sort of. I was very set on either becoming a veterinarian because of, you know, my love for, uh, for animals, or it had to be a lawyer. And I actually wanted to be a lawyer defending anyone accused of something. That was kind of my, my thing. Or I'd want to be a journalist because I've always been in love with, you know, reading and words and writing and all of that. So those were kind of my three options. And there were some yeah. like family debates or something that would happen around the dinner table, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, my family is very much a family that will debate important stuff. You know, we would discuss, we would talk about like, there wouldn't, I, I hardly remember any dinners where there wouldn't be any sort of like a deeper discussion going on about something that mattered. You know, looking back, I see that I was kind of that way 
like in school as well, I was sort of like not afraid to speak my mind. And so I guess I got that from kind of my home surroundings. I would say what I thought (laughs) and I still do. What were sort of the first hints or traces of activism in your younger life? Did you stand up for any causes that you believed in as a teenager or as a kid? Did you remember? Looking back, it's like so obvious, like, okay, I'm still me and I was still me then. So I think I was 10 or nine and I did a fundraising for a charity and I would go around to like stores asking them to like donate, like whatever, like toothbrushes, like whatever. (laughs) And then I would uh, arrange sort of, you know, this lottery outside a grocery shop with all these small prices that was donated and then collected. I don't know, a hundred dollars, (laughs) like, you know, the amount wasn't that much, but, but yeah, that was one thing I did. Uh, What was the charity? Do you remember the charity? Uh, Save the children. You know, save the children. No, it's a huge worldwide thing. So it's like a children folks charity focused. Who put you up to raising money for save the children? Like why, why did you feel, feel so passionate about this cause that you went around to these stores Hmm. Uh, trying to get donations yeah no one I that was my idea I don't know (laughs) (laughs) I have no explanation for you it's just like I guess it's just something and this is this is sort of like difficult to explain at times because people are like okay so what kind of inspired you why did you become like this you know and I'm like I've been like this I feel like I was born that way and I think that goes for everyone more or less I think people are kind of born with something that they've got, you know, and with me, you know, it came out early, I guess. I think I was 12 when I wrote a letter, like I'm, I'm, you know, Norwegian. And so I was living in Norway and writing a letter at age of 12 to Jennifer Lopez saying that I think she should quit wearing fur. <laughs> Cause that was, you know, that was another cause I was very much on fire for and still is. And I had just kind of realized the extent of the fur industry. And so I just had to let J-Lo know what I thought. <laughs> Did your parents recognize this in you and, and sort of encourage it and nurture it? And like at the dinner table debates, like say you should go out and do something about this thing that you care about so much, or did you um, not get that kind of support? No, maybe not that kind of support. Not that they would be unsupportive, but not that it was also like recognized in that way. No, I don't think so. What I will say that was very much supported was, you know, my reading and writing. And that was even very much supported from my teachers as well. They were, you know, always kind of cheering me on or like would, you know, read my essays to my class or like whatever. Like they would always reassure me that something was working (laughs) in terms of what I was doing. So I would say I've always been or felt like encouraged by adults in my life when it comes to using words whether it be in a discussion or on paper or reading it. You mentioned that your dad would get you to read these books and they would yeah. be these long books, sometimes difficult books. Is that what you feel taught you to stick with difficult things for the long stretch? Or did you feel yeah. like you kind of had that with you already in, as well? Yeah, I think that was with me partially, but I also think what I definitely got from, I would say both my parents were this kind of attitude that nothing is really scary or, you know, like a challenge isn't really like uh, the worst thing that can happen. And my dad would always be very much like, he would always, and I've gotten this from him, like he would always say, yes to something even though perhaps he didn't even know how to do it and so I'm I'm the same today getting a request you know I will just say yes and then I will just figure it out <laughs> how did you view success I think I viewed success in terms of keeping my brain healthy (laughs) because my dad would always say to me, like, don't do drugs because your brain cells are going to die. And that was the best thing that he could ever say to me because, you know, I never did drugs. So and the reason really was because I want my brain intact. (laughs) And so I think that has really kind of been my thing that I see 
you know, feeling healthy mentally and obviously physically as well, but like really feeling like I'm able to process information. I'm able to kind of read something and understand it and be analytical and share it. And like that to me feels successful, I would say. There was some addiction in your family. How do you feel like that affected you? Or is that what made that message? Don't do drugs and all that. Keep your brain right. healthy. Land right. even more because of that experience. Definitely, definitely. I've yeah, I've I've had addiction in my my close family for as long as I can remember. And definitely, I think you either go. I mean, obviously, there could be many different ways to go, but typically, you either go uh, down that road or you don't. And I didn't. Mm-hmm. I really saw the consequences and the effects, and I really saw that this doesn't appeal to me at all. So addiction, I've always been aware of, and I've always been, I would say, you know, very much aware of it being a disease. So, Mm. you know, instead of kind of thinking like, oh, he or she's choosing this before Mm -hmm. me, I was very much aware of the fact that it's a disease, it's an illness, and that's how the brain works. I would say rational about it to some extent, even, even as a young child like for as long as I can remember I've always been very much like understanding addiction in a way what about mental health did you have any experiences personally with mental health or were you around people who were suffering from mental health or were you more of like an optimistic type of person no I've never been affected like me personally in my own life in terms of like me as a person I've always felt healthy in that area but I've definitely seen it up close. And so I, I absolutely, I would say, understand it to the degree that you can as someone who's not directly affected. And yeah, I've definitely seen that. I've seen mental health combined with addiction and sort of, you know, the trauma that comes from that, really. So I'm very mindful of that issue today. And I really see it kind of goes hand in hand because, you know, with addiction, I think a lot of the problems really stems from or it could be you're using something to cope with something else and perhaps that something else hasn't been treated you know and so i'm I'm very much on fire for for mental health as well yeah mm-hmm. yeah or even diagnosed you could be yeah. going undiagnosed yeah exactly why did your family move to sweden in your final year of high school that was really my mom's idea she just had a feeling (laughs) honestly she told me one weekend I was visiting her and she just said you know I think we're gonna move to Sweden (laughs) that's the truth and I was just like sure mom (laughs) let's do it she's very much a like an artistic soul and she's very much like going with like what her gut is telling her and so so and sometimes I've trusted it and sometimes I've been more critical, but this time I kind of thought that perhaps she, perhaps she's right and perhaps I should come. And so I did. And I'm very happy about that. So it was an option. You didn't have to come. No, not at all. I was staying with my dad at that time. So I decided to. Go. Oh, so they weren't together. No, they weren't. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Together since I think it was 12 or something when they really like split up. So okay. That was- the decision on my hand to kind of go with the flow. <laughs> and was your sister with you or was she with your mom or how did that work? Yeah, no, she stayed behind a year and finished high school. Okay. And then she came one year later, she moved to Sweden as well and kind of joined us. Your final year project, you decided that you were going to highlight sex and pornography. Yeah. Can you talk about the genesis of that? idea? Where did that come from? Is that a normal thing to sort of use as your theme of your of your project <laughs> in high school? Or were you like trying to ruffle some feathers? I was probably trying to ruffle some feathers. Yes. No, that is not a common theme. No, not then at least. What I kind of did was that I sort of looked around and I was like, okay, so what are kind of the issues being talked about today? And what are kind of the issues that people aren't speaking about? Porn or my focus was more on like sex trafficking. But like that really stood out to me as a cause that I felt like, okay, I haven't heard anyone in my surrounding at least mention this. So 
let's see what we can do here. That is sort of my thing in a way that I get sort of inspired when there is a challenge. Had you seen a talk about it or did you read an article or some expose or investigative journalism? Like how did you even, how did that even get on your radar so strongly? I don't know. (laughs) I don't even know when I learned about it. I have no idea. Was the research extensive at that time when you were a senior in high school? Or were you frustrated by how little statistics there were? Yes, to some extent I was. Obviously there were stuff out there, but like, again, I was doing this before social media really. So there's just, it was limited, I would say. And I was like, what, 17, 18. So understanding research at that time is also not really perhaps the most easy thing to do. So Yeah. So I was more into kind of like, okay, so are there any movies like documentaries? And I would sort of like go towards pop culture ish, you know, to kind of find some stuff or learn some stuff. And I, there was especially like a few documentaries that really stuck with me that sort of, I think opened my eyes even more. And then that kind of went from there going from knowing a little bit and then just learning as you go, I guess. Most kids around that age are thinking, okay, I'm going to go to college or I'm going to go and get a job somewhere. What was your thinking post this sex and porn project about the next few years of your life, how how those were going to look? I knew right away, this is my cause. I just knew it when I was very much determined to make it my cause. And so right after finishing high school, I started what, you know, is today changing attitudes sort of like a youth organization slash lifestyle brand. So I immediately knew, okay, this is what I'm doing. And I just got to, you know, figure it out, sort of set it up, basically. What are the symptoms of that? Because I'm I'm asking this because, you know, some people are listening to this and they may have something they strongly believe in. But what were you, when you say you knew it, what were you feeling? How did you know that you knew that Hmm. this was your cause? Were you obsessed? Were you thinking about it day and night? Like what was your, what were you experiencing? D all above. (laughs) Honestly, that is kind of my cue. That is, that is how I know. I will get so fired up and I will get so engaged that I will literally feel it like in my blood. Like I, it's like my blood is boiling. Like I will just be so, I will have like a physical reaction almost, you know, to it being consumed by it. And I also judge it by in terms of because I noticed that people were listening to what I had to say. And so that is another cue, you know, you're like, okay, I guess I'm sort of making sense here. You know, I guess I have something to give here, something to Were you personally watching a lot of pornography as research and like taking notes and recording who's doing what and what these companies are and trying to find the owners of the companies at that time? Not at that time. I would do that a couple of years later. I would start really like looking into more the whole porn industry. Because, you know, when I started, I was very much focused on sex trafficking. And that's me again, being like, not satisfied with just one thing, like I just have to dig deeper. And so I sort of ended up in this whole porn issue. That wasn't my plan at all. But that sort of came out from doing research. And again, like digging deeper, that's where I ended up. What were some of the statistics around sex trafficking that you discovered back then that you just thought, wow, if only people knew more about this, I think a lot of people would be more sympathetic towards the gateway to sex trafficking, which could be, I guess, pornography. Since sex trafficking is so closely linked with the sex industry, I Mm. was struck by perhaps how many people thought of sex buying only happening in, you know, Thailand not really being aware of the fact that it's really happening in Norway or in Sweden or in the US or in Mexico or it's common. Also, I would say in terms of the connection, like you were mentioning with porn, just the kind of effects that porn can have on your attitudes and your attitude toward prostitution or paying for sex. So I think that kind of like, you know, I was, you know, okay, realizing that we got to be mindful of You know, this whole generation growing up with porn and what kind of attitudes comes along with that. A couple of years later, you were asked to 
give a talk. You were actually flown to Germany to give a talk on pornography. And in your preparation, you Googled porn and then you kind of saw it in a different light at that time when you were 20 something years old. Can you just talk about that experience of preparing for that talk and, and how it went? Yeah, so it was the night before, uh, and I read, you know, the statistics, and I knew what I was going to say, but I was just, okay, there's been a few years, like, I have to, I think I have to Google this, Uh, I have to just see, you know, what's out there, and so, yeah, I Googled, and I did it really, like, okay, so what would be the first thing that I see if I'm 10 years old or 12, and I'm just Googling porn, clicking on the first link, watching the first video, yeah, I'm not going to be too graphic, but like the two videos that I watched were graphic for sure. One of them being one girl and I think five or six guys just beating her up, really. And that was the first video. I'm not saying that's every video, but that's that's what I saw then. Yeah, and I so I just kind of, you know, the day after went into this talk thinking that, okay, we got to talk about this because that's always been my deal that, okay, if there's a difficult issue, we have to have a conversation about it. We cannot be silent. And so (laughs) I just came in with that. And the people arranging it warned me that, you know, there's probably not going to be that many people here. And just so you're prepared for that. But then they had to bring in, you know, extra chairs and people were sitting on the floors. And yeah, so many young people attended. And afterwards, there was, you know, this big line of people who wanted to share their stories. And especially this one guy that really stuck with me sharing how, how he was addicted to porn really, and sort of, you know, how that affected him. And so that really stuck with me. And then this whole porn addiction really started to, I guess, gain my interest. And you also now, I guess, had a real life person whose face you could put to that addiction. How did that change the way you you either talked about it or addressed it after meeting this guy and hearing his story? Yeah, that's a good question. I was very, because obviously porn addiction is like people still want to debate whether or not that exists. And so I think to meet so many people and him especially, and just like today with all the DMs that you get on Instagram, I think it really reassures you that this is in fact something that feels real for thousands of people. And so then I'm really able to kind of, instead of like going into that debate, I'm just like, okay, but what are people telling us? How are they experiencing this? And according to so many people, it does feel like an addiction. So I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to support that. I'm going to, you know, take that seriously then. What are the two sides of that debate? It's basically because, and this is important to mention, I have, you know, I, I always do in my talks as well, that pornography addiction, it's called DSM. Um, mm-hmm. so in the latest version of DSM, pornography addiction is not included. It is included in another sort of addiction Bible where it is classified as something being compulsive. So it's a compulsive behavior. So that's kind of where we're at now. And then you have one group saying, oh, it's never going to be formally acknowledged as an addiction. And then you have another group saying, well, we just need more research. So that's kind of the two sides. I would imagine it's kind of like social media. Like I'm sure a lot of people who use social media eight hours a day would say, I'm not addicted to social media, (laughs) you know, and, uh, but then you have people who may look at it, you know, an hour a week and there are people who just never put their phones down. So if we look at it, porn through that lens, Would Mm. it be kind of accurate to say that it's kind of the same thing? Like people aren't really good at assessing their own levels of addiction? Oh, for sure. And this is so common. I get this all the time. Like I didn't know I was addicted or had a compulsive behavior until I tried quitting porn. That's when, you know, you sort of realize the extent of it. So yes, for sure. You mentioned earlier, you started changing attitudes pretty much right away. Yeah. Why did you feel the need to to start a nonprofit around this? Oof. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I do not know. Sometimes I'm like, what did I do? <laughs> but no, joking aside, I knew I sort of needed a platform. That was sort of the thing. But honestly, I knew nothing about having an NGO and all, you know, the administration that comes with that. I had no idea. So I always like Mm -hmm. joke and say that, you know, had I known, I wouldn't have done it. But 
obviously I would have done it, but I was just like looking into the different alternatives and I just realized, okay, an NGO seems doable. So yeah, let's do it. Were you thinking of it as, okay, this will be my full-time thing and I need to be able to support myself as well? Or was it a situation where there was a lot of incoming requests and demands? Because you be, you started to become known as the person who talks about porn and you just needed help to field some of these demands. And or is it that you have an initiative that just requires a lot more manpower than you're, you're able to invest yourself? Right. I or, think or all of the above. Uh, again, D, <laughs> all of the above, yes. <laughs> I really think it's like a cocktail of all of that. I must say I was quite aware that, okay, I need to get this up and running financially to be able to do this full time. That was definitely a goal. And yeah, so I would do this more or less full time unpaid. And then I would take whatever lectures uh, that I could or, you know, that I could do, uh, you know, in terms of time, because I was studying as well. I was studying full time and working. And so I was just like doing it all, but this was always my main focus internally. I knew this is kind of where I'm, where I'm headed. Yeah. What was your side job while this was going on? Oh, I've had a few, uh, but the main, <laughs> <laughs> sometimes I'm like, am I a cat? Have I lived nine lives? Cause that's exactly what it feels like. But I used to be, well, two main jobs. I would say I used to be a personal assistant to a beautiful boy who had autism so I would work with him or I would do work like a salesperson in a store, in a clothing store. So wow. sales and then more on like the humanity side of it. And then at night you would devote your time to yeah. studying and researching and writing about porn addiction. And who were your first volunteers? My first volunteer was my husband today he's my husband (laughs) he was my poor boyfriend who had no idea what I was bringing him into basically told him I need someone to be in this board with me because I need three people and I'm one so you know you're one and then we need another one and I forced a friend of mine as well to join I don't want to get too personal here, but did you have to get him off of porn first? (laughs) (laughs) Or was he already? (laughs) No, I didn't. And that is actually, you know, to me, because I've gotten that question and I don't think it's actually that personal because for some reason he has never used porn. Uh, Really? Yeah, never. Like, obviously he's seen a magazine or two, but he's never been a porn consumer ever. Which is just, I know it's kind of unique, but again, before smartphone, before all of that. So I think to me, this has never been a personal issue in that way, if you know what mm-hmm. I mean. It's not like I'm affected by porn addiction in my close relationships or in my own life. So in terms of, you know, because I'm such an engaged person, I think that is a good thing. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that kind of keeps me cool. So you said you gave like 400, 500 talks and you've met with hundreds of people about prostitution, sex industry. You've met with thousands of sex offenders. How has your understanding of pornography, sex trafficking, and all of that evolved over the course of those hundreds of talks and and meetings with people in that field? Obviously, one thing, like we just talked about with porn addiction being such a real thing, that is one thing that I really, I feel sure of. The other would be, you know, the importance of having the conversations with your kids, having age-appropriate conversations to make sure that, you know, to kind of keep a realistic view. Because obviously, to some extent, kids are going to see porn today. That is like, that's a fact. So I think the important thing then is to prepare them and to teach, you know, critical thinking, just as we're teaching critical thinking in terms of media or social media or like whatever we're consuming, we need to kind of apply that thinking to porn as well. Were there any mistaken assumptions that you had in the earlier days that you were able to kind of see the light about later on or anything like that? Yes. Oh, wow. So many uh, issues. I think when you're younger, you tend to be more black and white, right? So you're more, it's either good or it's bad. And I think what I've really been taught throughout these years and meeting with so many different people is kind of the gray, 
areas in all of this. And I really remember because I did volunteer work with people in street prostitution in Stockholm and I've met with people in other countries as well. And then I sort of like exchanged that for meeting with people in in prison, uh, sex offenders. Mm-hmm. And what really like got to me was like their stories being so similar. And then one side kind of ended up being a victim or, you know, someone on kind of the receiving end. And then the other sort of ended up being the offender, not excusing anything, obviously, but just to kind of realize that they didn't start off being offenders. And I'm very much, you know, passionate for sort of like prevention work. I think that is so important to kind of, yeah, do something before it happens to prevent something. And so that's why I've always been on fire for just understanding why sex offenses even happen. Like what are what are the root causes and what can we do to prevent this to to protect people, basically. Has there been a moment during this sort of, I'm gonna call it a crusade <laughs> because you're so passionate about it, <laughs> where you where you felt discouraged? Yes, actually it has. And it was honestly, it was the first time I'd ever felt like that. And it was actually, it was right after I did my TEDx talk and it, you know, it had just dropped and I was just being like bombarded with DMs from, especially guys from all over the world, sharing their stories with porn and, you know, how it affected them and so on. And I just remember sitting in my kitchen, just really thinking to myself, like this problem, like it's too huge. There are too many people. How are we ever going to fix this? And I sort of remember I had like 15 minutes of just like having my head hung low, you know, and just like, this is never going to work. And I've never felt like that. It was the first time ever. But yeah, 15 minutes passed and I picked myself up and just like, no, (laughs) I'm going to, you know, go back to being, to being optimistic and to being, but obviously realistic as well, but to be hopeful and to think that we actually can do something. And so, but I really remember that. Yeah, that was a moment for sure. So your mission with Changing Attitudes is to eliminate all attitudes leading to sex buying through education in schools, events, and media, which is pretty, it's a very bold mission, you know, all attitudes in pornography, which is, I I read a statistic once that said pornography was bigger than all of the media, like if you add up NBC, ABC, all the US sort of major networks and and all the stations, like pornography is bigger than all of that. And on one hand, it's like, it's exhausting even just thinking about it. But on the other hand, it's like inspiring to think about how much courage it must take to go against all of that. And it it reminds me of that parable of the starfish, you know, saving the starfish. And I'm sure you've heard of this with the there's a, a man walking down a beach and there's like, it's the beach is it's, it's littered with thousands of starfish that have washed upon the shore. And there's this little boy on the other end of the beach, just taking a starfish and throwing them back to the ocean. And the man goes up to the boy and says, what are you doing? And the boy says, I'm trying to save the starfish. And the mm-hmm. man goes, well, there's thousands. You, there's not, there's no way you could possibly save all these starfish. And the boy picks up another one and tosses it back to the ocean and says, well, I saved that one. And he picks up another one and it's just like, it's not about trying to save everyone, you know, it's just about doing the best you can with what you have and and making it, making a difference locally, hoping it has a ripple effect. Yeah. So is that, is that how you kind of have seen your mission over over the years? Yeah. And that is also something that I've sort of like developed into. I think when you're, again, when you're younger, you're thinking, oh, I can change all of it. And today, I think I'm more, just as you're saying, I'm like, yeah, but let's do my part. I'm going to do my part. And then you, you know, you'll do yours. And together, it's going to create, you know, a ripple effect. And I absolutely believe in a lot of like positive change. But I also believe in cheering on the small steps that we all collectively are taking, you know, not sort of demanding this. 180 degree turnaround, you know, I'm just like demanding more conversations, you know, and then again, to be like mindful and sort of honest with what is your mission in this area. And so I feel like right now, my mission is to inspire conversations. And so that's what I'm doing. And then if anyone else want to do something else, I mean, like, great, you do that. But I, you know, I know my lane, and I'm going to stick to that. Where have you seen the most progress? 
Because I'm sure, you know, like you said, you, you want to start these conversations. You want people to stop engaging in sex trafficking. You, you get DMs like, where, what's been the, where, where have you gotten the biggest traction? I mean, it's with porn, the whole issue with porn. And I would say so very much social media based. And especially after the TEDx talk, like that really cost, I guess, like people from all over the world to share their stories. And so that has sort of been perhaps like the biggest experience in all of this, because, you know, I've been so focused on Sweden, Norway, Europe, Scandinavia. I mean, that's big enough, obviously, so many countries, but still, (laughs) you know, now you're getting DMs from Saudi Arabia. And so that kind of broadens things for you. Yeah. I'm curious to hear your thoughts about the line between sort of classical pornography and social media where you have the objectification of women by women or versus seeing that as like female empowerment and all that. But, you know, I mean, look, we're being completely honest. Women are on social media in G strings with their asses out. And it's Mm -hmm. clearly to get attention or likes or, you know, things like that. Then there's only fans. And how do you see all of that in relationship to what you've been advocating I think that's a valid question. And I get a lot of questions about that. Like people are actually like, how should I navigate or what should I think about this? And obviously like my kind of ground rule would be like women can do whatever women want to do. And like all of that, of course, mm-hmm. and to sort of have it be something that, you know, we shouldn't judge people for whatever they do. And, you know, that's kind of my core thing to me. It's not really about like, any specific individual doing something with their account to me is more about a culture. Mm-hmm. So I'm like taking a step back and looking at the culture and seeing what is sort of demanded of women to be noticed today, you know? And again, let people do whatever people want to do as long as it's like legal and consensual, but taking a look at the culture, I think wouldn't hurt. And there's a great Ted talk actually. And it's about porn culture And it really addresses uh, this whole thing about the society sort of giving women two choices. You know, either you are fuckable or you are invisible. And so I think being invisible isn't really a choice. So you're kind of left with one thing. So to me, this is a culture thing uh, to sort of Mm -hmm. be mindful of. Yeah. And, And combining that again with everyone's right to, you know, post whatever, whatever they want to post. Yeah. How do you define success for yourself as well as for your mission? Success to me, like a successful thing that can happen to me is right after a public talk somewhere, people actually stay behind to continue the conversation. That Mm -hmm. is success to me. A great memory, actually, I had a talk, like, I don't know, like 300 high school kids and this group of guys, like five, six guys would stay behind and just like chat for an hour and a half about porn. And so to me, that is successful. And I mean, we would say pretty much the same, like in terms of changing attitudes, like the success would be sort of measured in the amount of stories that are kind of shared with us. And that really goes to just like the feeling of having people, I guess, trust you with your stories that feels successful, I think. Is there anything that you would do differently if you had to start your mission all over again today? Yeah, that's such a good question. There are so many things actually that I would have done differently. But by saying that, I also want to kind of honor what has been done because I really feel like I did Mm. what I sort of knew at the time. You know, when you Mm -hmm. know better, you do better. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking back at like this 17, 18, 19 year old young adult, just like being on fire for this, I guess I thought stuff and said stuff that I wouldn't have thought and said today. But again, you know, I sort of want to like cherish the journey. So I'm not really sure that if I had the chance, I, I'm not really sure if I'd gone back and like actually changed something, but mm. perhaps the structure of stuff or just how things were set up, maybe just to kind of 
free space because obviously running an NGO takes a lot of time. And so perhaps it could have been like, I don't know, like a different setup or something, maybe. But well, let me ask it this way. If let's say somebody reached out, I'm sure this happens to you all the time anyway, but let's say someone reached out to you and they said, hey, Maria, I've got this, I'm really passionate about this one cause. What's mm-hmm. like one or two pieces of advice you would give to a young person who wanted to devote a significant amount of their life to this cause? I'd say first, I'd just say like, do it, just start. Cause here's the thing. When you, when you start something, you have no idea how the end products, or at least I, I never knew how the end product would end up looking like. And I still don't, obviously I'm still doing this. So <laughs> I really see it as like this ladder, you know? So you got to just really like take the first step mm-hmm. and then sort of the rest of the steps will reveal themselves to you. So it's really about like doing that one thing and then, you know, just kind of going with the flow in terms of the snowball effect that will come with that. But then I would also say, and this has been my thing. I've always done this. I've never been afraid to hang out with people who don't agree with me. I think that's important because I think there's always this risk of like, just like splashing in your own pond and just hanging out with everyone confirming what you're saying all the time. And so I was quite quick on realizing that, okay, I have to hang with people who, who won't agree and who will sort of like share a different side to this story. And so that's why I started interviewing people in the porn industry as well, because I was like fed up with me talking about this issue and not having met a single person. I was just, I couldn't do it. So, so yeah, to sort of like get close to your cause from perhaps a different perspective is something that I would, I would give us an advice. Yeah. Is there anything you need help with now? Like if someone's listening to this who may have resources or connections, like what do you, what do you feel you, you could use more of in your cause today? I would say it would be so cool to do more, just like more educational work within different sort of industries, like the music industry or the movie industry, or a bit more like pop culture focused would be cool. So I'm open to basically any ideas. I always tell people this, that when people are saying like, okay, what can I do? And I'm like, share this, talk to your friends. So I would also say it's so important just to kind of keep the, you know, keep the conversation alive amongst your friends and whoever you're hanging out with. Because in a way that all together, it sort of forms this energy that I think sort of creates this global conversation. Beautiful. Well, I like to end these conversations with a little reflection of my own. And normally I will go back and talk about your favorite activity or toy, which for you is reading those difficult books and riding horses. And you kind of already mentioned that the deeper lesson behind the horseback riding was caring for the horse. And then ultimately the leadership training skills that you acquired from from the whole experience and not being able to not forcing the horse to do things and uh, taking care of the horse first, which is kind of a, uh, obviously a metaphor for leading in your movement of, Mm. you know, not trying to force people to do things and, Mm. and really seeing people as, um, as, as not flawed, but just their addictions are really symptoms of something else that that's happening that hasn't been, diagnosed or addressed. But yeah. I want to talk also about how your family life obviously prepared you for this last thing you just said, which is, you know, surrounding yourself by people who don't agree with you. And I'm thinking back to those debates that you guys would have around the, mm-hmm. the dining room table at dinner time and how valuable that must have been in sort of helping you understand how much more you could learn about something from just getting close to to people who challenged your your thoughts about a thing. I think that's really what's missing when you look at social media, when you look at you know the comment section of whatever the hot topic of the day is. There are a lot of people delivering monologues, but not a lot of people actually open to hearing other perspectives and listening, actively listening. And I think if we all did that a little, even just 1% more, we could probably solve a lot of our problems faster than what's happening right now. So I just want to acknowledge you for the work that you do 
your TEDx talk has garnered 5 million views and counting. And you have, you've written a book in, it's been published in Sweden. Yes. Was the book written in Swe- in Swedish? Yes, it was. Okay. Okay. Yes. So when you grow up in Norway, do you learn? Is that, how does that work? <laughs> no. So I, I mean, obviously languages are, you know, quite similar, but yeah, no, I had to learn Swedish when moving here. So no, so you, I, wrote, you wrote it in Swedish. Yes, I did. That's in Swedish, the first one. So the English title will be would be Visual Drug on Kids mm-hmm. Youth and Online Porn. And then my second book is coming out now this fall, also in Swedish. So the first book was aimed at basically adults, parents, you know, professionals meeting with young people. And then this one will be aimed directly at young people. So 12 to 15 years old about porn, sex and consent. And hopefully something in English will come out in, you know, who knows how many years, but yeah. I feel good about it. <laughs> I did too. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, impressed and I'm inspired by all that you do. And, uh, and I hope that the people listening to this will share it with their friends and, and you guys need to also check out Maria's TEDx talk. And you've done a lot of other videos, interviews and podcasts and stuff. So, and it all kind of leads one to question again, their own use of pornography, because it's not a, it's not an uncommon thing for right. most people to have some sort of exposure to pornography. And it's always good to just kind of look at, okay, what am I doing? How am I consuming this? And is it being helpful? Or is it being hurtful, hurtful right. to my life and, and being honest about that? And I think that's really at the core of your message. It's not about shaming. It's not about judging anyone. It's just about, hey, let's just at least have the discussion. And so thank you for for being the one to to bring up that question and helping us as a society to look at that and reflect on that and and hopefully make some better choices as a result of that. Thank you. That was kind of you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my interview with Maria Aline. If you want to watch her TEDx talk or follow any of her work, you can find all of the most relevant links on my website, lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. And there's also a transcript of my entire interview with Maria. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for my daily dose of inspiration email, which is a short and sweet daily motivational message that I've been sending out to my subscribers every morning for years now, since 2016, actually. And if daily is too much, look, I get it. It's a lot for me, too, to write, if I'm being honest. I also offer a weekly option as well. So you're still covered. My next book is actually based on those daily doses of inspiration. It's called Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration, and it's now available for pre-order. And I would truly, truly appreciate it if you pre-ordered the book. It comes out in May of 2021, and you will find purchase links for the book at lightwatkins.com as well. I want to take a moment to thank T. Lindo, TCCSQ. Fit by KP, Sri Lanka Heart, and Alexis Robertson for leaving your lovely reviews of this podcast on the Apple Podcast app. If you still haven't left your review for At the End of the Tunnel, please do so now, and I will shout out the last five people who leave a review right before I record my next introduction. And as you know, we are a review-driven culture. So by taking those two minutes to leave your review, you'll be helping other people find these inspirational stories. And who knows, your words could inspire somebody to give this episode a listen, and it could end up changing their life for the better. So thank you in advance for helping me out in that way. And thank you to those of you who've been sharing these episodes with your friends and followers By the way, if you tag me, I will repost it and give you a shout out. So make sure you add my handle to your posts. I am at Light Watkins on Instagram. And otherwise, I will see you back here next week with another amazing story from the end of the tunnel. And in the meantime, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart and keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, hey, I believe in you. Have a lovely day.
you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.